This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Hired.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal, accounting, and tax support. And they'll give you $1,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $2,000 instead. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Freelancer Show. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the freelancer show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This episode is sponsored by Nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you, and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D. And enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 196 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking about failure. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read this. It was posted back in November to our topic recommendation forum thing on GitHub. You can put your own in there. We've put a ton in there. But if you have ideas, go ahead. Anyway, here we go. It's an episode on failing your in your freelancing endeavors. This could mean just failure of a particular facet of your business or outright failing as a freelancer and having to crawl back to the man and regular employment to feed your family. Maybe consider the effects of failure. What does it mean to fail for your psyche, for your family, for your position in your community? How does it feel? How do you react to learning of this about you? Or how do others react to learning of this about you? How can you pick yourself back up and possibly turn it into a lesson that benefits you in the long run? And then he has, but more importantly, were there warning signs? Could you have averted failure? Once you have spotted warning signs, how can you change course, especially in light of the fact that you are probably short on cash and hustling flat out already by this point? How do you know that you are indeed about to fail and not just in a lull or have to wait a little longer until a new approach finally picks up? And any other lessons learned? So lots of questions there. I'm curious, what does failure look like for a freelancer? Is it going back and getting that full-time job? Are there other flavors of it? Uh -huh. That's a really, really good question, Mike. I, I don't think there's one definition of failure. 
And I know that, at least as I've experienced it, and I've got some pretty good stories to share later on, it has like this quality of you feel stuck, you feel like nothing's working. I think I've experienced some stuff that other people would define as a failure, but for me, it's it's just been like, well, you know, this is a thing I've, I've got to get through to get where I want to go. I don't know. Maybe you guys can speak to that. I've never had a failure that I didn't just take as a signal to change direction or try something different. I can kind of see that. I was talking to my wife yesterday, and I, I basically used the words, I feel like I'm failing at everything. And for the most part, just talking to her, I kind of came to the realization, she kind of coaxed me toward the realization, she's much smarter than I am, that in a lot of ways, I'm not failing, but in a lot of ways, I also feel like I'm not doing as much as I want or feel like I ought to. You know, so for me, it's mostly mental. Now, I have had some colossal failures in business and other things, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's the same. It's, okay, well, what do I change? How do I get to another place where it's healthier or happier or better or more money or whatever the problem really is? And once you put it into context, failure is a whole lot less scary and is more just a place to change, a place to, you know, move on to something better. Yeah, like I, I feel like there's tons of things I've tried and they did not work, but there was always the next thing to try or it, it never seemed like a, an end to something. I, I guess for me, if I if I was forced to stop working for myself and start working for somebody else, that would probably feel as close to what a failure as anything I've experienced. Yeah. I think there are sort of different parts and different perspectives to the failure. And one of them is just our own personal failure. Like I know, you know, just sort of if I do a bad job with a client, I know, you know that that's one kind of failure. If I'm not making as much money as I need to in order to support my family, that's like a deeper kind of failure where I say, boy, maybe I'm just not cut out for this. And that's definitely happened to me over the years. Mm-hmm. And then like part of that is a feel of failure. Part of it is a feel of embarrassment. Like I said I could pull this off. Why am I not able to pull this off? Like what am I doing wrong? It must be something inherent in me. But then there's another one, which is like we see and we talk about and we even interview on the show here, people who are just amazingly successful freelancers. And sometimes, I mean, I've felt over the last few years, boy, I've been doing this for a long time. And I always thought I was okay at it because I was able to pay the mortgage and everything. But I talk to these guys and wow, they just like blow the pants off me. Like, what am I doing wrong? I must be bad at this. And so I think you have to sort of put it in perspective and say, if you're meeting your bare sort of necessities for income, for expenses, and so forth, that's probably like a good line of, of sort of where to keep it or to be striving for. But above and beyond that, it's just a matter of always getting better, and everyone's always improving, and always, everyone always trying to keep improving. Yeah, well, you put the baseline out there of being able to pay your expenses. Uh, I have a story I can tell about that. So last summer, I didn't publicize this much, but uh, last summer my house was in foreclosure, and there were things that kind of came down to that. But, I mean, we, we weren't paying any bills, really. And, you know, my wife was depressed, and there were there were a whole bunch of other things going on. It was all related. But anyway, what happened was I was in the dumps. I mean, we could pay for food and keep the lights on, but, you know, there was no way I was going to come up with, I think it was $15,000 I needed to get my house out of foreclosure. And we we had another house that was also in foreclosure, and, you know, that was another, like, $12,000. And so it's like, oh, my gosh, I mean, what are we going to do? And you're looking at that, and you're like, man, I failed. I mean, really, you know? Uh, My family, we're going to get a fridge box, and we're going to go live by the mailbox. It is. It's scary, you know, at that point. Or even I've been in a few situations where it's like, I don't know how we're going to eat for the next month, you know, and then something will work out. But 
it is. It's really rough to be in that position. And then what wound up happening, I'll just, uh, I, I should save it for later and keep the suspense. But what wound up happening was I had been working on pulling together a remote conference for Angular. So I talked to my mastermind group and they said, if you, you know, I didn't tell them everything, but, you know, I, I told them I was in dire financial straits. And, and they looked at me and they said, make a plan for your conference, make a plan on how you're going to market it, and then follow the plan. And so I did. I, fo- I made a plan. I followed the plan. You know, and, and I think that that inflection point was when I realized, you know, I can find a way out of this. I can make my own way out of this, you know, and, and maybe I can't, but at least I'll put myself in a position to where I can minimize most of the damage. And so I followed the marketing plan and uh, I needed 15 grand to fix the foreclosure on the house that we live in. And the conference made 24 grand. And I don't know that it would have wow. done nearly that well if I hadn't been pushed along and been motivated to do it. And so, you know, it's a terrible place to be down at the bottom, but at the same time, a lot of times that allows you to rise that much higher when you come back out of it. And I think that perspective there of also, and it's so, so hard to see this when you're there. It sounds like, like you, I, I haven't gotten quite to that point. When I've experienced failure, especially financial failure, especially like, oh my God, where am I going to get more money? Where am I going to get more clients? How is this possibly happening to me? To realize it is possible. It is possible. At least, certainly, I think it's, it's safe to say for those of us with technical skills, for those of us with these sorts of skills, like it might mean going and getting a job, but it, at the end of the day, you will be able to get out of it. And that's a matter of sort of choosing the path that you'll find. But believe me, believe me, I remember, I mean, I don't remember exactly what was happening or what I was doing, but I remember like coming out of a client's office and getting a phone call from my accountant, basically telling me, like, you've got bad news going on. This was many years ago. And it's still, like, gives me a pit in my stomach hearing these sorts of things or thinking of these sorts of things because you think, oh, my God, like, I thought I had it all together. I thought I was really doing a great job of consulting here. I, I tell other people what to do because even then I was doing that. And, like, it's just a sham. But, but it wasn't. like a, the point a sham? What do you mean? <laughs> basically the thought that, you know, I can actually pull this off. Right, because to some degree, I think I've often had, I mean, just uh, I think in the last week, I was saying to someone, yeah, like I've been independent now for 20 years, and somehow I've still been able to, like, you know, pay the bills just about every month. And it's not a matter of, oh, somehow I've been able to. It's it's a matter of some of it is certainly luck, and some of it has been learning the hard way, and some of it has been, it's it's a business, and it's not always guaranteed to happen, but it, it can happen. So, but it definitely feels like, Wow, I can't believe this is actually going on. Like, I can't believe that I've been able to sort of pull this off for so many years, not have a job with a paycheck for so many years, and it's managed to work. Right? I'm still some sort of waiting in some ways for someone to say to me, "Ha you thought you could do it, and no, no, go back to a real job." You know, I, I think you're talking about my my pet. Uh, I think mental illness is is a wrong word for this, but I have a bad case of black and white thinking, where I'm like, it's either this or it's this, right? And I think when we think about failure, maybe a lot of us come from that perspective of like, well, I'm either making, you know, this imagined standard of success or, or what, or I'm a failure, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think there's, there's a whole wonderful world of learning that, that can occur between those two extremes. So this might be interesting for listeners. I'm going to list out some of my uh, bigger failures. And this is a, it's a very partial list, folks. So strap yourself in. So I have filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy, which for our non-U.S. listeners is the kind of bankruptcy where you don't really get to keep much at the end of it. (laughs) I've had a home foreclosed on and uh, taken away by the bank. I've had credit card debt that I was unable to pay, which led to the former two things. I've, for extended periods of time, failed to make enough money to cover my expenses. 
I've been fired multiple times by clients. That's largely over, but <laughs> that was part of the learning curve. I launched a productized service that uh, went way, well for a while, did not scale, and then I shut down. Early on, I got behind on my taxes and had to negotiate with the scariest department of the U.S. federal government, the IRS, to work out a uh, what's called an offering compromise. I've made bad hires, and later those people had to be let go or fired. And those are really just the, the highlights. So I think as people are, are listening, they might sort of mentally – I guess there's a, a sort of a scale of like – pain that comes with different types of failures. And I've experienced some of the more stressful, painful ones. And they all seem like learning experiences in retrospect. None of them would I ever say, well, you know, I failed and, you know, I'm not good at paying my taxes. <laughs> the, the U.S. government doesn't let you <laughs> declare yourself a, a permanent <laughs> failure and stop trying. You just, you get to keep trying, you know. Uh, I'm not done trying to be a homeowner. I'm not done trying to make money as a freelancer. And, you know, things are much better now. But, yeah, I've tasted failure. And I think that was one of the questions, like, what does it taste like, right? What, what does failure taste like? It, it tastes like a lot of pain. And one of the things that I was mentioning before we started the, the recording is that I think it tends to isolate you because it's not easy to talk about or share about your failures. So that's one of the biggest downsides. Chuck, I'd be curious, how long did it take you to tell anybody what was going on with, you know, the house financial situation? About four months after I brought it current. Okay. So, <laughs> right. So you, you didn't want to tell anybody about it, right? Oh, heavens no. Yeah. It's, I was it's, embarrassed. Well, yeah, the, the we, other thing is, is I, I portray myself on these shows and stuff as a, you know, as a successful person. And I just felt like I was letting people down by admitting that I had messed that up. And well, it, yeah. once I got over it, then it was like, you know what? This is really important for people to understand i mean that it's not just an automatic you know whatever and that i didn't get a game over sign on my screen when i you know right they didn't come take your computer away and That's close right, down you your, your uh your dropbox account yeah nobody said it's got another coin to continue it just didn't you know i didn't have a choice i kept continuing so yeah although it's much tougher i mean i, I think the, the lessons that i learned when i was like an early consultant early on and I would say the lessons that I learned later on were probably tougher and harsher. But those early ones, it was like, well, at least it's just me. And the fact that I'm married, the fact that I have kids, like every oh, time yeah. things aren't like aren't working out, I'm like, oh my god, like this is all on me. This is all on my shoulders. If a client doesn't pay on time, and I was depending on that client's payment to make whatever payments I needed, right? I, I feel pretty horrible. And by the way, I'm then extremely cranky as a result. Yeah, we should do a show on irritability. <laughs> <laughs> I might be an my, my family is not invited. <laughs> the more self-employed people I talk to, the more I find that they're all like, yeah, I have gone through long periods of time where I'm super irritable and yeah. just a pain to be around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my current funk is that I've just, uh, you know, low energy, just not feeling good, unhappy with certain things. And it's funny because just talking through it and realizing, oh, the worst case scenario is, is that. I'm still unhappy with it. You know, with most of the stuff that I'm dealing with right now, it was like, okay, I'm going to live through this and it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, but when you really think about it, your brain just goes to, you know, oh, crap land and, you know, then what? I'm curious if this is just an American thing. So here's the dynamic that the emotional dynamic that happens around failure. And this is true of myself. And I'm hearing Chuck say something that sounds very similar. It's like, okay, this doesn't match other people's perception of me or the perception I want them to have of me. 
So I'm just not going to talk about this. I think that's driven by shame. Uh, embarrass- I mean, Ruben, you mentioned embarrassment, which really the sort of extreme version of that is shame. The, the and, other end of that, though, just to throw uh-huh. it in, is yeah. not just this is the perception that other people have of me, but the perception I have of other people is that they don't have these problems. And so, so I'm way worse off than them, and I'm a loser and a failure because nobody else has these problems but me. So I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to talk about it. Right, or a variation there of what client would hire me if they knew dot, 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 right? right. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. Um, and I think we were all on this show past that fear because we talk about stuff that, you know, <laughs> uh, meets that. Anyway. We hope our clients just don't listen, that's all. Yeah, the shame leads to isolation. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Chuck, you mentioned that when you fessed up in like a sanitized version to your mastermind, they gave you an action plan, mm-hmm. and, and that connection with them started to turn things around. So I don't know if this is just a, a United States thing where, you know, we, we all want to be sort of foil paintings of, of success, or, Ruben, do you see that in other cultures? You're, you're more widely traveled than I am. Yeah, I think it's a universal thing. Yeah. I, I mean, although it's, it's probably safe to say that the people with whom I'm speaking, especially on a business level, right, if I'm meeting with them or working with them, Right, they're not about to share with me. Oh, yes, I did this terribly, and this terribly, and this terribly. Um, right, everyone's sort of trying to put on a good front. Yeah, I think it's sort of natural uh, as humans. Look, here's an extreme version of it. Right, we always like to say, or people in Silicon Valley always say, you know, we fail fast and we learn from our failures and everything. And yet, the people we talk about in Silicon Valley, the people we hear about, the people we read about, right, they're not saying, "Wow, I really crashed and burned." They're saying. My company offers, you know, fancy catering every day and I'm making lots of money. And I'm running two companies and, you uh-huh. know, on, on and on. You don't, you don't hear enough about the sort of day to day, which is 90% of them or more of the startups and the other companies that are failing where people are actually learning probably a lot. And I've heard many stories about how investors are more, not that interested in investors, right? But like that, that investors are looking to find people who have failed because they've learned the lessons and they'll do it better next time around. But we talk about that a lot, but we don't actually hear from those people very much. We don't glorify them very much. And yeah, that, there's some shame there, right? Like, you know, it's it's hard to get up in front of people and say, hey, this thing that I'm talking to you about that I'm going to be an expert in, right? You know what? It, what's okay to say is I made this mistake a while back and I learned and I don't want you to have to make the same mistake, right? And right. quite frankly, I do that a lot in my courses, right? Here's a really big code smell. Don't do it. I did it a lot of times, <laughs> yeah. right? right? But when I'm code, doing live coding in front of people, or when I'm trying to explain something and I have no idea what I'm talking about and it's obvious to everyone, that is a less happy moment. Yeah, right. Or hypothetically, I'm, you know, I'm behind on my mortgage payment and I don't know what to do and I don't, <laughs> I don't have any new work in the pipeline. Like that's the least fun way, or that's the least fun moment in a failure situation to come clean and, and connect with people. But that's when I think people are going to want to help you the most. Yep. You know, that's not a TED talk. But that is a um, that's a moment where people will will kind of drop what they're doing and be like, dude, let's let's talk this through, let's figure this out. Yeah. The other thing was though was that you know, and I was just afraid that people were going to say, oh, he failed, and then they were going to quit participating in the podcasts or the other products mm-hmm. that I had out there. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I don't want to buy from a loser, but. It turned out that, again, I mean, that audience, those people that, you know, figured out what was going on, you know, as I talked to people. And, you know, when I came clean afterward on a couple of podcasts, you know, just in the context of talking like we are now, it became readily apparent, like you said, that 
those people weren't going to leave. If anything, they were going to double down and say, we love what you do. Here's more help. Mm -hmm. One of the questions Luca asked was, what does it mean to fail for your psyche, your family, your position in your community? Like, I felt it the most in my psyche, probably because I'm an introvert. I do remember when I told my parents that I was uh, filing Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And uh, I remember that silence on the other end of the phone. (laughs) 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 I've I've gotten that from them a couple of times, (laughs) a couple different things that I've uh, shared about my life. And and that really hurts. It really hurts to feel like you've said something that the other person doesn't know what to say back to you about. They just don't know what to say. I mean, eventually it it was fine in the end, but it's not easy. And I, again, those are the things that I think make us remain silent about it when we need support from other people. I remember, I think I just read recently, someone said that Facebook is really problematic because everyone's always sharing how beautiful their children are and how happy their lives are and how many successes they've had. And right, and you get this picture of everyone else around you has just had a great, perfect, fun, smiley life. And you are the only one experiencing dread and problems and stress. And, right, that's so not true. Uh, I mean, really, one of the things I enjoy about interviewing people on the show is to find out these people I so look up to. And so I keep saying, I wish I could be more like them. Like, they got issues also, whether it's personal issues, whether it's business issues, whether they had issues before. It makes me feel much better, like, okay, you know, I'll I'll get there too, and I'll I'll learn from this. And I, I think your point also about, like, not being ashamed, not being embarrassed to admit the failure is extremely important. And, and quite frankly, I think one of the, one of the groups with whom I have to speak about this more and more openly, and I think I've done this more, better, better over the years, is with my family, mm. right? Where, where be open about, oh, I'm not sure what's going to go on with the business at some point, or I'm having problems, or we're having issues here. Because they have as much of an investment as I do, literally and figuratively, and they should know what's going on. But they also should, I mean, and I made this mistake sort of in spades as we were, yeah, and we're taking out oodle and oodles of loans for the PhD. Um, at a certain point, my wife pulled me aside and said, stop telling the kids how many loans we have, right? That is not going to be useful to anyone, <laughs> right? right? You're just getting them stressed. And I was like, yeah, but it's true, and we will get out of it. She was like, that's not the point you're emphasizing here. <laughs> Wait, how old were they, Ruben, at this time? I mean, now, like, they're 15, 13, and 10, so it was like two years ago, three years ago. And actually, like, two of them were, were okay with it, but my, my middle one, who's much more the worrier, and she was like, oh, my God, I'm so worried about our finances. So I had to really, like, pull her aside and say, okay, I'm glad I'm able to talk to you about things, but I also need to sort of dial back and dial back your worry. And, like, and every so often I sort of check in with her and say, okay, you should know we're doing okay now. And, like, she's very happy to hear this and relieved. Um, I'm imagining her browser history having searches. Are our children liable for their parents' deaths? <laughs> Six ways you can decorate that refrigerator box. <laughs> But yeah, but like, I feel like being open with my family. I mean, I remember, I think I've mentioned on the show before, when I first got married, my wife said, so how much do you make a month? I was like, well, it depends. She said, what do you mean it depends? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right? This was the first time she had encountered someone who, who had that sort of up and down income. And so I've seen this sort of my responsibility and maybe too much of an onus on me emotionally to say, yeah, I'm going to take care of this. Like, I'm going to make sure that's not going to be an issue, which means that when it is an issue, then I feel it strongly inside of me like, oh, you're not doing your job right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the place that I go to, too, is I worry about it, and I take care of it so my wife doesn't have to. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, and then it's like, okay, so, you know, when it's a burden, it's my burden. You know, I think for me, one of the sort of early warning signs, maybe not a failure. I mean, the, the way the question was phrased here, were there warning signs? Of, well, you said, were there warning signs? 
So I'm taking that as not warning signs about failure. But if there's any time I'm like hesitant to do something I know I need to do, uh, like kind of resisting doing it, that's usually a sign to me that something's not right. And maybe it could lead to some sort of failure. It's like a, it's a sort of diagnostic for me. I think in general, like there's the whole kind of startup Silicon Valley frothy idea about, you know, you just embrace failure. You try to fail quickly. You try to do a good job of failing and learn as much as you can. And ideally, sure, yeah, that sounds great. But I think the way before that, you just have to sort of try to take the fangs out of it and not be so afraid of it. And again, I, I say this as someone who has resisted every failure that's come his way. There was always a time where I was like fighting it, I guess is in the end what I'm trying to say. And sometimes that time of fighting it went on way too long. That's one skill I've built up. I can say that by failing multiple times in, you know, big and small ways is like, if I see it coming, usually I'm like, okay, let's just get this over with. You know, it's like the scene in the movie where the guy knows he's about to get punched, so he takes off his glasses. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> go ahead and do it. It's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. For me, I mean, the warning signs are usually somewhere around the line of when I find myself justifying things or when I find myself uncomfortable with something and trying to hide it or trying to, mm -hmm. I mean, cause that's just, I don't know why, but it's default behavior for me for some things. And I'm just, you know, so I hide it and I don't talk about it and I don't, you know, and it's not critical yet, but if I don't take care of it, if I don't bring my wife in on it, then a lot of times it does become critical. And mm -hmm. if I do bring her in on it, then a lot of times we can sit down and make a plan to fix it and we can avert a lot of it. Not yeah, always. There's, a, there's almost a, a sort of a anticipatory flinch of like, oh, I think this is bad. Mm. So the people in my life, they're going to double down. They're going to make me feel worse about this. And what a surprise <laughs> to those of us who do that when they're like, okay, that's not great, but let's let's fix it. Let's Let's put our heads together and fix it. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, the other end of that, too, is that I'm embarrassed and I feel bad talking about it. For example, if I had told my parents that our house was in foreclosure, my dad would have probably done something really dumb for himself to get us out of it. And, he would have sacrificed yeah. himself in some way. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I wasn't comfortable about uh, I wasn't comfortable bringing it up to him either because of that, because I didn't want to put that burden on them, on my parents. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's hard to, to talk about it there, too. And, uh, you know, for me, it's it's any of that discomfort is the warning sign. And, yeah, anyway, that's that's kind of where I come from here is just, you know, yeah. If, if I'm uncomfortable, if I don't want to talk about it, if I want to hide it, if I'm embarrassed to even talk to my wife about it, then it's something that I need to deal with. Out there. Yeah. So I have definitely experienced uh, extended periods of depression that I think come from this feeling of failure like, um, and I think we should talk about like what is success because I think that's where this whole idea of failure comes from is like the inverse mm -hmm. of success or not achieving success. And I think that that may be a big part of the problem is that people see themselves failing when they're really just learning. That's anyway, really good. yeah, I've, I've definitely had extended periods of depression that came from me kind of being down on myself because I wasn't achieving what I wanted to. And I wonder if that has happened for you too. I don't know if I'd call it depression. But I definitely felt like, wow, how can this be that I'm just like not making progress? I'm not getting better with this financially. Or, mm -hmm. I mean, I mentioned the chat before we started the show that like, you know, PhD is almost like guaranteed to do that to you because the whole point of it is sort of to make you feel really small and bad. And, and, and it, it worked. 
<laughs> is, is it like designed to do that? Is it like a hazing ritual of some sort? <laughs> yes. Yes, actually. I mean, it's a, an apprenticeship, uh -huh. but the apprenticeship comes with, you know, some degree of hazing where you will just like be at your advisor's beck and call and they will tell you all the bad things you've done. Wow. And in my particular case, my advisor was like that. I mean, like <laughs> the extreme version uh, or one of the extreme parts was, so, I mean, I finished by the skin of my teeth. And that, that, like, I got three deadline extensions. The second one I was told was unprecedented. And the third one was because my advisor basically went and beat up the graduate school people and said, you will let him finish this. So, like, <laughs> on that front, I was gra grateful to him, sort of, kind of. But three days before my defense, I was in my advisor's office, and he said, you know, you are the most unprepared student I've ever had go on do a defense. And, like, went on and on, on about, like, basically how I'd done it poorly and done nothing. And I started crying. <laughs> Shockingly, right? And he was like, I don't know what it is. Like something like you should maybe get some therapy for this because something's stopping you from finishing this PhD. And my thought, of course, was it's you. Right? You're, <laughs> but that's a, an unwise thing to say. But really, like for much of the process, the the feeling you get from your advisor is sort of almost by design. You're not doing it well enough. You're not doing it. You know, all these other people are doing great work and mm. you are not. Mm. And I think what was hard for me was. Like, I, I want to do this. This was supposed to be a fun thing. This was supposed to be a fun thing that was going to take, haha, just a few years and would sort of help to enhance my, my business career and other things. And instead, like, whereas my clients were sort of happy with the work I was doing, here I was being beaten up, like, for what was basically a very expensive hobby. Um, and it was very, very upsetting that here I was losing my time, losing money and, and feeling bad about myself. And at the end of the day, I had to realize, you know what? Like, I can walk away from this. Mm -hmm. Right, I don't, I, I don't necessarily want to, but that feeling of I have other things that are going on in my life that make me feel good helped to sort of bring me out of those feelings of upset and panic and realize that this wasn't a dead end, this wasn't the end of my life, you know, this wasn't, uh, you know, something I was destined to feel forever. And that, that definitely helped to put things in perspective and then realize, okay, I'm going to do the best I can. Mm -hmm. Worst case scenario, I can't. You know, Ruben, I have a, my own internal PhD advisor that I carry around in my head. He sounds a lot like yours. <laughs> so I have a question because we've talked about a lot of places where we failed and, you know, it seems like we've come out of it one way or another, you know, pretty well, pretty healthy. But one of the questions is how do you know that you are indeed about to fail and not just in a lull or have to wait a little longer until a new approach finally picks up? So how do you know if you should give up or if you should push through? Because I always See, just push through. That's my default thing, right? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a pusher-thrower. And having seen that that can just drive deeper into what's not working, I, I suggest people find some kind of semi-objective external validation system. You know, for me, it's so easy to get in my head about, well, this is, you know, I should be making this and I'm making this or, you know, this should be the way it is and it's not getting some kind of external validation. So, you know, if you're trying like a, to go to develop a new market position for your business, getting external validation that that, ha that, that has real value is critical rather than just doing the sort of startup-y thing of, oh, I have this idea, I'm going to build something around it and just, you know, push on it for 12 months to see what happens. So I think that's a big deal. And then, yeah, just getting out of your head. I guess that's my one point to add on that. So I tried to do a startup a number of years ago, probably like eight years ago or so, doing it just after we returned to Israel while I was in the middle of PhD. Not so wise, but fine. Let's ignore that. <laughs> I think it was like at, at the like nine-month point that I sort of realized no one gives you this official sign that you should give up on it, right? It's all up to you whether you want to power through it or whether you want to give up. And 
for most people, it really won't matter. Like that's to say, for you, it'll matter because it's your own personal project and you invest the time and money in it. But for the rest of the world, life goes on. And I think that was a really, of all the things I learned from trying to do that startup, that was probably one of the most important things, that it's up to me. Do I want to say, okay, like enough or not? And and I've definitely taken that with me in, in some ways where if I'm working on something and it's not clear whether it's going to pay off, I do try to sort of keep going, keep going, keep going. But I think I'm more willing now, sort of earlier now, to recognize that it's not worth the investment of time, that I'm doing other things that are more interesting or better for me. But it's still hard for me to give up on stuff because I'm, I'm this constant optimist. And I'm always sure better things are around the corner or I just need to make one tweak and it will improve. And having to prioritize has been a painful but useful uh, lesson for me to learn and one I'm still learning in spades. I really don't have good context on this particular question because I always just push through until it's very apparent that it has already failed, not that it's about to fail, and then I give up. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm really bad at quitting while I'm ahead. So the other question here, and I think this is really just to a particular type of failure in freelancing, is once you've spotted the warning signs, and this is specifically in, you know, you don't have work, you're not going to make money, whatever, uh, how can you change course, especially in light of the fact that you're probably short on cash and hustling flat out already to this point? And my answer to this is mostly just stop and really think about where you're at and make a plan. That's what happened to me with that with my house. That's what's happened to me several times where I've run into this where I don't have any work and I don't have any real good prospects for it. If I sit down and really think about it, there are a couple of things that usually become pretty apparent to me that I could do, and that is go back to the people who have already hired me and paid me for work. I can go to the people that I know. I can go to the local community. I can go to the wider community for my podcasts, and I, I can reach out to all these people, and it, almost inevitably somebody knows where work is. But just stopping and kind of taking a breath is usually the first major step because once you sit down and you make that plan and you realize that there's more stuff that you can do and maybe smarter stuff that you can do, then it gets a whole lot less scary and you stop kind of running just for the sake of running and stop doing stupid stuff because you're not thinking two steps ahead. I've seen at least two distinct phases in my freelance career. One of them was when I was operating as a generalist and sort of hand-to-mouth when it came to work and had done nothing to build up my own audience, had no email list, uh, wasn't being proactive about managing a pipeline. So it happened even when things were going sort of okay that there would be gaps between work. That was a different situation than I'm in now when there's a kind of momentum that comes from having, you know, an audience and having done the work to kind of build up name recognition and so forth. And so that stuff kind of has a sort of momentum and like work comes in even when I'm not actively trying to make it come in. So if you're in that situation and something has failed, like I started this service, My Content Sherpa, which was a great idea. You know, it was subscription content marketing and I did some good work there, but it it just wouldn't scale in a way that was compatible with my weird sort of personality, which doesn't really want to manage a team. So like that was a failure where I could afford to kind of build something else because there was some momentum that carried, carried me through. Whereas, you know, in the earlier part of my freelance career, I really would have had the hustle to make big, big changes. So it kind of depends, I think, on where you are in terms of how you manage that. 
What I can say is that, you know, doing a Chapter 7 bankruptcy has uh, consequences that last for years and years and years. So you might want to prioritize how you respond to a failure based on, you know, kind of avoiding the more serious consequences. And may, and also try to kind of do a realistic risk assessment of what is uh, a serious consequence for you and what's not. I mean, maybe firing a client is something that terrifies you, but it's not really as bad. And there's another client kind of waiting there to hire you. And so the fail, maybe you're, you have a failed project and you need to resolve it by getting out of that project, uh, obviously by, you know, honoring your obligations, but still getting out of it early and moving on to something else. And that would be much better than, you know, grinding it out for six months and becoming down on yourself and depressed and, and exhausted. So, you know, some sort of prioritizing the risks and being realistic and maybe getting a a third-party perspective on what, is it really that bad to do this versus this? Those are all ways that you can maybe kind of navigate your way out of a, of a failure situation. Yep. Do you have anything you want to add, Ruben? Look, I found that one of the, uh, I mean, I got advice years ago to do a mastermind. And so I've been in one now for, I think, about three years. And one of the great things I enjoy about it is that I can bounce ideas off of people. Right. And these are people with whom, you know, who I know and who I've, uh, they, they've seen sort of my journey as a freelancer and as a consultant. And I can share with them my successes, but I can also share with them my challenges and my upsets and my failures. And we're all there for each other and we're all there to sort of help each other improve. And so the fact, like, like having that group of people to bounce ideas off of who are also in the same profession is, I think, very useful because it's one thing to bounce it off my wife or maybe even friends, but these are other freelancers who are in more or less the same boat. And on no small number of occasions, we've managed to help each other out with advice. Oh, have you tried X or Y or Z? I've done that. And it's, it's been really great. And or to encourage each other when there have been problems. And it's funny, like, I totally, totally remember the period when I would say, oh, my God, I hope I'm going to get work for next month. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, you know, kudos to you, Philip, and, and your book uh, for convincing me that actually specializing is a great idea because that has definitely changed everything. But, like, I think back, it wasn't that long ago when I would be sending random emails out and that was, that was stressful and that was depressing and that was annoying and that was worrying. And it made me wonder once again, gee, maybe maybe I'm just doing this all wrong. In retrospect, I guess I was doing it all wrong. (laughs) I'm glad that I I, I learned that in a relatively gentle way. Yeah, you can look at it that way or you can look at it like, well, that was a transitional phase. But I think you bring up a good point about building a support system before you need it and the mastermind, you know, thing can be that it can be, people that you routinely meet with, having that sort of professional layer to your support system can be nice. And when I say professional, I don't mean like hiring a therapist, although that can be very good too. I mean, peers in your profession who you meet with, they can be there for you. I mean, I think we all have some story about that pulling us out of what could have been a failure or was a failure and and making it better because, you know, your family's there for you too. Uh, for a lot of us in that way, but they don't necessarily have the domain knowledge about what exactly to do the way that your peers might. So uh, I, I just wanted to point out that I, that's an important way to sort of prepare for the inevitable, which is something's not going to go great at some point. It's good to have that support before you really need it. You know, we mentioned talking about success. I think that should be a whole other show. <laughs> well, Well, it's interesting, right? Because I think we all have this idea in our head of what success is. But it's so vague that we don't actually know when we get there. So Well, it's funny. I, I think in, in the last probably year or two, I've started to think about that more and more. I really used to think success would be this massive you know, consulting conglomerate 
and my name on the tops of large towers and everything shining over the city. And first of all, it's been a while since I had any thoughts like that because I'm so past that. But beyond that, uh, like, so what does success mean? And I, I keep thinking more and more, you know, if I can basically have enough money to, you know, enjoy, and this is like on the financial front, it's not necessarily on any other front, just to sort of enjoy time with my family, where we can spend time together, where we can do more or less the things we want. That is so, so, so enough for me. And the goal for me is no longer you know, accumulate as much as humanly possible. It's let me just have some nice time with my family and some of the things that we want. Um, and that changes it all of a sudden, right? It means that if I'm, you know, if we're able to more or less get what we want, then I can consider myself a success. And then to bring back to your, your sort of black and white thinking, Philip, if I'm a success, then I must not be a failure, right? Which is always an encouraging thought. Yeah, I mean, here's why I think it's almost its own topic is because I've looked at my own achievement of increasing amounts of success and and then realized that each time, uh, as soon as I'm there, the sort of idea that it would be permanent evaporates. And it's like, well, what's what's next? <laughs> what's the next uh, level of success? Okay, so I'm not in financial duress at all times. At one point, that was probably the definition of success was to be out of out of that, and I'm not in that place anymore. So, you know, like what's next? It's really interesting how achieving something that you defined as success is so fleeting. And that's why I think there's there's probably a larger topic there. There's something going on sure. with that that's pretty interesting to me. Yeah, and see, for me, success up until this year where I really sat down and said, what do I want? And we talked about this in the goals episode. It really was just, oh, well, I don't have, to, I'm not worried. I'm not deeply worried about anything right now. That was success. And so as long as nothing interrupted my success, in other words, as long as I wasn't failing, I was successful. And so it was kind of the inverse of what you've said, you know, where if you're a success, then obviously you're not failing. For me, it was, yeah, that that was exactly what it was. I didn't have any major failure cases I was dealing with at the moment. And then a fire would start the next week, and then I was failing again. You know, there's this Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is probably a little outdated by now, but... I'm thinking about all my failures and the base level of needs is things like physical needs, you know, food, water, place to live, et cetera. And then it goes up from there. And I don't think I've ever gone below like the second highest level of on that hierarchy of one, two, three, four, five, right? So the bottom three have always, even at like my most failing moments, have always been there. So it's it's interesting to keep that into context as we talk about failure and success. I don't even know if I remember what all of the things are on the hierarchy of needs. Yeah, it's a sort of pyramid. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff in, you know, United States of America for someone who has a place to live and healthy food to eat and so forth, a lot of the stuff they're worried about not having is like the top two layers of this pyramid. Yeah. But yeah, we should uh, do a show on like what our definition of success is. And yeah, I think it would be interesting with more and more people becoming freelancers, and that's their you know either the only available or their preferred way of making a living in the world. I think there's a lot of range of of what success is. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, should we get to some picks? Sure. All right, Ruben, what are your picks? All right. So in the wake of our uh, discussion now, so I thought of. Uh, two good books I'd read a while ago, uh, and then I'll have a, another pick that's not related. So the first book is Startup, a Silicon Valley adventure, an oldie but a goodie. It's from 1996, and I can't believe that it's actually oldie. But it's about this guy who decides to do a startup, and everything he encounters along the way 
and basically all the walls put in his way. It's a fun, fun, fun story. I think in the end, his company like sort of kind of succeeded. It might be that it was a wild success, and I missed it. He actually finishes the book basically after going through all sorts of travails. It's usually touted as a book in terms of, uh, you know, how does it work in Silicon Valley in the startup world? But there's also so much <laughs> failure, so many points in that book in which he says, oh, it can't possibly continue. I've got to stop now. And then it continues. Uh, so, you know, goes on from there. Another one, uh, which I remember reading uh, just a few years ago, is called Dreaming in Code. And uh, Mitch Kapoor, Kapoor, the guy who did uh, Lotus, then decided to fund an open source contact manager program. And it was a colossal failure. It was just a colossal, colossal failure. And so it was documented in this great book. The subtitle is Two Dozen Programmers, Three Years, 4,732 Bugs, and One Quest for Transcended Software. And I remember reading this book and thinking, oh, my God, someone actually has figured out how the software industry feels, like how it, at all these points you're so sure it's going to work. It's going to be great, and then it doesn't let you down. So those are two good uh, books about software failure to, to look at. And uh, the third thing I just want to mention is there's this fantastic new podcast called Surprisingly Awesome that's on Gimlet where basically they take a topic that they think is probably boring and then they try to convince you that it's really great, that it's awesome. So they've done them on mold, they've done them on broccoli, they've done them on glue, all of which were great, but the most recent one was amazing. It was about frequent flyer miles. Now, <laughs> the second half is okay. The first half is one of the best stories I've ever heard in terms of frequent flyer miles or in general. Suffice it to say, a man bought out most of California's supply of pudding and managed to fly his family around the world for more than a decade. It is totally worth listening to and a lot of fun. So uh, anyway, those are my picks for this week. <laughs> All right. Philip, what are your picks? It's amazing. I have two picks this week. Uh, we mentioned some of the uh, less fun emotions that uh, come with failure, things like shame. And I would encourage people to Google a person named Brene Brown. Um, she's got a funny little accent mark over the second E in her first name. Uh, just Google her. You'll find tons of things, a, a very well, very popular and well done TED Talk on the subject of shame. And, you know, under the category of sort of emotional intelligence, I think it's good to learn a little bit more about uh, what it feels like to fail. And she's done a lot of interesting research around that. And again, the sort of emotional aspect of that. She actually has a book about that, which I've not read, in which she interviewed a bunch of high achieving types and um, sort of learned about their progress through failure into something else. That's probably worth checking out. That's my first pick. My second pick is a Kickstarter that's happening right now, which means at a certain point this pick won't be really relevant anymore. But it is right now. My friend Nick DeSabato is working on in the sort of finishing up a book called Draft Evidence, and that's on Kickstarter. So if you go to Kickstarter and type in Draft Evidence, you'll find the book and you'll have an opportunity to contribute to it if you want. And when it comes to fruition, it'll be a paper book that details some of how Nick runs his business and has some other interesting, fun stories as well. And I think that's worth checking out if you're interested in, you know, some of the inner workings of, of being a solo freelancer or consultant and being successful at it, despite the many challenges that come your way. So those are my two picks for this week. All right. I'm just going to quickly remind folks that I am traveling and I would like to meet you. In May, the JavaScript Jabber and Adventures in Angular podcasts are going to be at NGConf in Salt Lake City. Now, I live a half hour from Salt Lake City, so, you know, it's not like people around here can't just meet up with me at the regular code meetups, but 
Uh, if you're there for AngieConf or if you want to just come meet some of the other folks on the shows, uh, then by all means, uh, come do that. I think we're going to do the meetup then on May 5th. And then in July, on July 9th, I'm going to do another meetup, and that will be in Chicago. So if you are in Chicago, then then check that out. I'm going to be there for Podcast Movement, which is a podcasting conference. So anyway, just putting all that out there, I would love to meet people. Uh, the best way to get information about these coming up is to join the mailing list. So if you go to freelancershow.com, um, you can actually get the top 10 episodes of the Freelancer Show in your inbox, and that automatically adds you to the list so that I can reach out to you and let you know what's going on. And you'll also be subscribed so that you can get emails whenever we put out a new episode of the show. So anyway, those are, I, I guess that's one big long self-promotion pick, but there you go. I'd like to meet you. So I'm picking you, the audience. There we go. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you to the panel for being here. I'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.